Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. I'm a big sports fan, as many of you know, and in the world of sports, there's a big debate about who's the GOAT. You're like, the GOAT? The greatest of all time. An acronym. The greatest of all time, the GOAT. Now take for basketball, and I have pretty strong opinions about basketball, and some of you can come up after the service and you can talk to me and I'll tell you how you're wrong. But here's the point. (laughs) To me personally, Michael Jordan is the GOAT. Now some of you may think it's LeBron James. That's just patently false. It's Michael Jordan. A lot of times it depends on what decade you grew up in when it comes to sports. For example, if you grew up in the 70s, maybe you think Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is the GOAT. Maybe in the 80s it was Magic Johnson or Larry Bird was the GOAT. Some of you may think, well, maybe it's LeBron or even Kobe, but I'll sell it for you right now. It is Michael Jordan. Now, there's also the debate in football. Who's the greatest quarterback of all time? Some people would argue it's Tom Brady. Some of us Broncos fans would say it's John Elway. Some would say Peyton Manning, or even maybe some would say Joe Montana. Do you remember Muhammad Ali's famous line? What was Muhammad Ali, the greatest boxer of all time? I'm the greatest. That was his famous line. He was the world heavyweight champion, 56 wins. And yet, as I'm the greatest, he had his first loss in 1971 to Joe Frazier. And all throughout the 70s, he struggled. There's the Thrilla in Manila, if you remember. And then he lost to Leon Spinks in 1978. Okay, let's talk about hockey. Who's the goat in hockey? Some people would say it's Wayne Gretzky. Who's the goat in Olympic swimming? Some people would say Michael Phelps. Who's the goat in women's tennis? Serena Williams. In golf, there's a debate. Who's the goat in golf? Some people would say Tiger Woods. What about baseball? Is it Babe Ruth? Some of you younger people would say, no, it's Aaron Judge. Well, it's too soon for that. He's just starting out his career. See, we love to rank our favorite athletes and have debates about who's the greatest of all time? Who's the GOAT? Who's the GOAT? And yet, here's the stark reality. This list is probably going to change. There's probably going to be somebody that's going to come along and get more titles, more stats, more championships, break more records, get more MVPs. There's always going to be somebody who's going to be another greater GOAT. Now, here's something interesting. Think about this. What if in a few weeks, you and your friends and family are sitting around the Thanksgiving table You're carving the turkey, and then you begin to get an argument among your friends and family about who's the goat among yourselves. Not talking about sports, talking about yourselves. Who's the greatest in our family? And you have this knockdown, drag-out fight about who's the greatest. Now, that would be weird and unsettling to talk about as a family at the dinner table, who's the greatest. But this is exactly what happens in our text today when the disciples are sitting at the table with Jesus at the Lord's Supper and they're arguing about who's the goat, who's the greatest of all time. Just hours before 
his death. So let's pick up where we left off last week. Luke chapter 22, we're going to start in verse 21. Last week, Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper in the bread of thanksgiving and in the cup of the new covenant and his blood. And so here's where we're going to pick up. Verse 21. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. But woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who's the greater? One who reclines at a table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So this morning, what I want us to do is to see this passage unfold in in four movements or four sections or four different vignettes. And there's alliteration this morning to help you pay attention because all good Baptist pastors have to have some type of alliteration in their sermons. That's just a rule you learn. So first, we see the darkness of the moment. The darkness of the moment. Now, think about the moment that's going on here. They're at the Last Supper, i.e. the Lord's Supper, and Satan had already entered Judas' heart to betray Jesus. But notice the wording that Jesus uses. He says, Woe, woe to that man by whom he's betrayed. There's a darkness. There's a woe pronounced. There's this someone's going to betray me right here at this very table. And then the disciples get a little jumpy and they start looking around and thinking it might be one of them and, they, and, and they're wondering, and they're pointing fingers, trying to figure it out. Could it be me? Who, who's going to do this treacherous deed? But one thing you notice about this passage of Scripture is that Jesus is not a victim of tragic fate. It's not some random accident. This is unfolding exactly as God had predetermined it to unfold. Notice what Jesus says in verse 22. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. As it's been determined. That word literally means as it's been predestined to take place. It was God's sovereign, predestined, determined plan for everything to unfold exactly as it did, down to who would betray Jesus, down to the details of his arrest. Everything is happening under God's sovereign timetable. Luke, who wrote this, also wrote the book of Acts. And how does Luke describe the events surrounding the cross of Jesus as a predetermined act of God? In Acts 2.23, this Jesus... Delivered up according to the definite plan, there's the same word, the predestined or definite plan, and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. 
And then later on in Acts, the early church, as Luke reports it, would say this, Acts 4, 27-28, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So you can't escape the darkness of this moment. It is God's predestined plan for these things to unfold the way they're unfolding, but there's a betrayer at the table. Satan has entered Judas's heart. It's a dark, solemn moment right at the heels of the Lord's Supper. It's a dark moment. And the disciples are beginning to freak out. They're getting a little jumpy. Second thing we see this morning is the danger of pride. In this dark moment, we see the danger of pride. Verse 24 says a dispute arose. That's a very interesting word. It's the only time this word shows up in the entire Bible. It's a very interesting word. You know what the word means in the original language? The love of victory. It's a contentious argument where the issue is who's going to come out on top. We're going to argue this thing to the last. We're going we're to keep pummeling each other with this contentious argument to find out who gets on top. The love of victory. Who will win the debate? And here's the shocking thing for me that I had to ask. Why does this come up now? Do, do, you, see the, do you see the disconnect? Why have a major argument at this point when Jesus had just instituted the Lord's Supper? He's sitting there at the head of the table. How do these disciples not learn anything in the past three years? Now, we can't get into the psychology or the head of these disciples because the text doesn't tell us, but we know human nature and we know what the Bible says about sin. So I think these disciples are guilty of two sins as they're thinking about arguing. First, they're guilty of self-preservation. It's not going to be me. Oh, I'm, I would never do this. I would never betray Jesus. It can't be me. There's no way it's going to be me. I would never betray Jesus. I'm as solid as a rock. I would never do such a thing. I'm going to preserve myself and kind of put myself out there and say, this would never be me. I would never do this. And so they're arguing about who's the greatest. Self-preservation. Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with the humble is wisdom. So there's a, a level of self-preservation. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to save face here. I'm not going to de deny Jesus. But in this argument about who's the greatest, the second sin, they're guilty of self-exaltation. They got jumpy. So they start playing the comparison game. They start touting their resume as to who's the greatest. And I can picture it unfold like this. Now, this is not in your Bible. This is Pastor Sean's sanctified imagination. I can picture Peter standing up and saying, now, wait a minute, guys, I'm the greatest because I'm a fisherman and I left my fishing boats. I left everything for Jesus. I'm the greatest. And Matthew says, sit down, Peter. I've got better. I was a tax collector. You were just a fisherman. I was a tax collector, and I left all that wealth, and so I'm greater because I am a tax collector who left my wealth. You were just a fisherman. And then John steps up and says, now wait a minute, both of you are wrong. I'm the greatest because I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. I'm the greatest disciple. 
And they're arguing about who's the greatest. Who's the greatest? Who's the goat? Who's the greatest of all time among us as disciples with Jesus right there at the table? Pride is very dangerous. And oftentimes we're unaware of when we are prideful. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 29, 23. One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. Now, all of us struggle with pride. I've struggled with pride my entire life. As a matter of fact, I've struggled with pride since a kid that my parents bought me a t-shirt when I was seven years old. You know what the t-shirt was? It's based upon that Mac Davis song. Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. I can't wait to look in the mirror because I get better looking each day. I literally had a shirt growing up that says it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. My parents would say, that's you, Sean. It's hard to be humble when you're perfect. That's the argument going on here. Who's the greatest? John Stott said this, and this is good advice. At every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility, our greatest friend. Is pride your enemy, or is humility your friend? And then Charles Spurgeon said this, he called pride a brainless thing, as well as a groundless thing, for it brings no profit with it. There is no wisdom in self-exaltation. James 4, 6-10. But he gives more grace... Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. They were guilty of self-preservation and self-exaltation. And what should have happened is Jesus' warning should have led them to self-examination. Instead of getting up and trying to position themselves about who's the greatest, they should have kept their mouths shut. And they should have looked at themselves and thought about the gravity of what just happened. What did Jesus just say? One of you is going to betray me. They should have kept their mouths shut and thought deeply about it. Why was this argument so sinfully inappropriate? I mean, it's, it's inappropriate anyway, but it's sinfully inappropriate. Think about the context. This argument erupts at the most sacred of all meals. It was the Passover, for one thing, which is what the Jewish people celebrated, so it was a sacred meal to them, but Jesus had instituted the Lord's Supper. They're arguing at the communion table, okay, at the Lord's Supper, and they're arguing about who's the greatest just hours before Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus is going to suffer, and he's going to die, and these people are going to, these disciples are going to abandon him. They're going to head for the hills, One commentator put it this way. They failed to realize the reality of his predictions concerning his death. 
And so they spoiled the sacred atmosphere on that evening, the eve of the crucifixion. They spoiled the atmosphere. This was an atmosphere of intimacy and love and the Lord's Supper and, and, and soberness. And these men just spoiled the whole atmosphere by arguing about who's the greatest. This dispute. And Jesus rebukes them and says, you guys are acting like pagans. You're acting like pagan Gentiles. Notice what Jesus says to them. He says in verse 25, the kings of the Gentiles, the pagans, they exercise lordship over them. And those in authority over them are called benefactors. You see, the Gentiles, the kings, the leaders, the pagans, they push their way forward. And that word benefactor there was not necessarily used positively. A benefactor was usually a person that strutted around town in that ancient world, like was kind of a celebrity, would give people money, but he wasn't doing it out of the generosity of his heart. He was basically giving money so they would be beholden to him, so that he could hold something against them, so that he could kind of put them down. And so what did the Gentiles of Jesus' day value? Power, prestige, popularity. Well, that sounds very familiar, doesn't it? What does our culture value today? Power, prestige, popularity. The more you push your way to the top, the more you're admired in our society. What does our culture value more? Our culture. The professional athlete that brags about his accomplishments. The billionaire tech giant. The glamorous movie star. The TikTok influencer. The powerful businesswoman. Those are the people that our culture wants to be like. What about the custodian at the local school who works hard behind the scenes to make sure the school's clean when the students show up? What about the stay-at-home mom that homeschools her kids so that they can have a good education? What about the farmer who spends all of his time out on a tractor making sure that his land is farmed? What about the special education teacher? What about the overweight girl in high school that's made fun of because she never gets a date? You see, the world values power. How much power can you hold? How popular can you be? How do you get to the top? That's the world's value systems. And that's exactly the opposite of God's value system. Paul would say it this way in 1 Corinthians 1.27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So there's the gravity of the moment. The darkness. The darkness of this moment of betrayal. But third, we see the definition of true greatness. The darkness of the moment, the danger of pride. Third, we see the definition of true greatness. Verse 26 is important how it's structured in the original language. Jesus says, but not so with you. Now you can take that two ways in the original language. You could take it as Jesus saying, that's not who you are. Going right to their identity. That's not who you are. But you can also take it as, that's not the way you act. Going to their behavior. So Jesus attacks both. That's not who you are. And that's not how you act. As disciples of mine. That's not you. You guys are arguing about who's the greatest. You're seeking power, prestige, popularity, 
that does not define you or how you act. So Jesus gives the, the definition of true greatness. True greatness is being a humble servant who's willing to go unnoticed and to do things behind the scenes and to put others first. Notice the definition of true greatness that Jesus gives there in verse 26. Not so with you. Rather, here's the definition, let the greatest among you become the youngest and the leader as one who serves. The youngest in that culture was not given a lot of attention. It was more the elders that had more attention. The servants. Remember the words of John the Baptist in John 3.30? He must increase, but I must decrease. It's not about who's the greatest. I must decrease. Now Paul teaches this very faithfully in Philippians chapter 2. We looked at this earlier during our time of confession, but I want us to go into a little bit more detail exploring this passage because Paul unpacks for us really what a servant looks like. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, you may want to turn there, or we can just keep it up on the screen. There are four ways in this passage of Scripture that Paul teaches us about Christ-like humility. And here's the first thing. In verse 2, Paul tells us to have the same attitude or the same mind. If you go back and look at the book of Philippians, that word shows up about ten times. To have the same attitude, to be thinking the same way, to be unified in our thinking, to be going in the same direction. Now under this topic, verse 2, this attitude, Paul gives three subheadings. It's the way it's kind of worded in the original Greek text there. So under this category of having the same mind, Paul says, here are three subheadings of how that works out. And they're all in the present tense, which means these are ongoing things we should be doing as Christians, as a lifestyle, and showing that we have this one mind or the same attitude. So subheading number one is keep on continually loving one another. How do you have the same mind? How do you have the same attitude? Well, there's constant love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 John 3, 16-18 By this we know love, that He laid down His life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us love not in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Love with action. Okay, subheading number two. Keep on continually being united in spirit. Literally, Paul says, be one-souled. We as believers should have the same soul knit together, the same attitude, the same soul, thinking the same way, loving one another. And then subheading number three, keep on continually being intent on one purpose. Have one mind. It's, it's all basically, Paul's, Paul's compounding the issue by using all these different terms. Have the same heart, have the same whole soul, have the same mind, go in the same direction, have the same attitude. Be so interknit together as believers that you're, you're going the same direction. You have this deep affection for one another. That's Christ-like humility, is to, is to be in agreement, to be in unity. Does that describe you? 
Are you compassionate? Are you unified? Are you loving others? Are we going in the same direction? Are we doing it with joy? Is there a culture of oneness at Emmanuel Baptist Church? Is there a culture of oneness in your family, in your marriage, in your life? Are you cultivating this culture of going in the same direction? Okay, the second thing Paul addresses in this Philippians passage is our ambition. He says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And when he says do nothing, it's like a double negative. He says, no, don't do this at all. Don't even do this. Do nothing, absolutely nothing, out of rivalry or conceit. Now, some translations say selfish ambition. Don't do everything, don't do anything out of a greedy heart of selfishness, trying to get ahead, this selfish ambition. You know, there was that, Movie from the 80s, Wall Street, with Michael Douglas, his character Gordon Gecko on uh, the, the financial guru. And he gives that infamous speech about greed. And this is what he says in that movie. Greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Unfortunately, this type of attitude can prevail even among Christians. Greed is good. Galatians 5.26 Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. You know what the word vain conceit means? Empty glory. Empty glory. When you are seeking your own way, when you're doing your own thing, when it's all about you and your selfish ambition, it's empty glory. You think you're bringing glory to yourself, but it's empty. The glory should be going to God and God alone. And when it's going to God and God alone, it's a full glorious type of glory. But when it comes back to you, it's just empty. It's nothing. It's an empty glory. So Paul says, make my joy complete by having the same attitude. Number two, don't be selfish. And then third, In the second half of verse 3, he exhorts us to humility. Count others more significant than yourselves. Count them. Give attention. Concentrate on others. As more significant. As greater. Do you put other people's needs before yourself? Do you consider other people's needs as more important than yours? This is very difficult to do because most of us think the universe revolves around us and that our needs are premier as opposed to putting others' needs ahead of ours. Are you surpassing, are you putting others ahead of you? Are they surpassing you in greatness? Are you elevating others? Are you giving attention to others? Or are you drawing attention to yourself? Then the fourth way Paul wants us to make sure his joy is complete is in focus. There in verse 4 he says, look out for one another. Literally, keep on intently looking out for one another. When your eyes are on yourself, you're always looking out for yourself. He says, don't have your eyes on yourself. Look out for others. Be others-centered. So what's Paul saying here? Have the same attitude. Don't be selfish. Don't be ambitious. Be humble. Put others before yourself. And don't just be looking out for yourself, but look out for others. How much your life would change if this was the attitude that you adopted on a daily basis? A Christ-like attitude. 
Which of these do you struggle with the most? Ask God to give you grace to be able to live according to this passage of Scripture. You see, the mark of true greatness, Jesus says, and even Paul would say, do you have a joyful willingness to serve others when it's uncomfortable, when you don't get attention, when nobody pays attention, and you go unnoticed, and you may never get popular, and you may never have power, and you may never have prestige, but you're doing it because you love Jesus and you love the other person. Regardless of what you get back, are you loving? Are you serving? That's true greatness. Now let's get back to the Luke passage here for just a moment. There's the darkness of the moment. Someone at the table is going to betray, and we know it's Judas. There's the danger of pride. They're arguing about who's the greatest. There's the definition of true greatness. It's being a servant. But Jesus ends this focused on himself. Fourth, we see the death of the greatest servant. Verse 27 is very interesting. Look at the question Jesus asks in verse 27. He asked his disciples, who's the greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Basically the same thing in that culture as is in our culture. When you're at a dinner party, when you're at a banquet, who's the most important? Is it the Hollywood gala people that walk in and sit at the tables of honor? Or is it the servers behind the scenes that are serving the drinks and serving the food? Well, in the world's eyes, it's the, it's the host. It's the people at the table. The, the ones reclining at the table, the, the dinner guests, they're the most popular, they're the most prominent. Not the servers, not the waiters and waitresses. They're just behind the scenes. So the world looks at the power brokers, the world looks at those that are in charge as the ones that are the most important. And, and Jesus says that's the way the world looks at it. But what's really important is the ones that serve. And then notice what Jesus says. He blows that paradigm out of the water and gives the unexpected answer at the end of verse 27. Notice what he says. But I am among you as the one who serves. Jesus was at the head of the table. Jesus was the greatest man that ever lived. Jesus was the greatest teacher that ever lived, the greatest healer that ever lived, the greatest leader that ever lived. But Jesus says, I'm the greatest servant. I'm the one who's serving you. Now, how did Jesus serve his disciples? Well, if you go to John's gospel earlier before this, in John 13, 1, before he starts to wash the disciples' feet, it says that now before the peace of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He served them. He loved them to the end. He served his disciples up into the cross. Let's ask the question about us. How did Jesus, as the greatest servant, serve us? Romans 5, 6-9. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. How did Jesus serve us? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Romans 8, 31 through 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God's for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give to us all things? How did Jesus serve us? He gave his life up so that we could have all things. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. In that Philippians passage that we just looked at, Philippians 2-4, through Paul says, here's how you are to be a servant. And Paul doesn't just stop there and say, here's how you are to be a servant. He gives an illustration in verses 5 through 11 and says, Jesus is the ultimate illustration of what it means to be a servant up to death, even death on a cross. So let's continue reading that Philippians passage and see how Paul fleshes it out. Right after he told them to have the same mind, have the same attitude, to love one another, to be humble, he says this in verse 5, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have the same attitude as Jesus. What is that attitude, Paul? What is the attitude that Jesus had? Paul says, I'm glad you asked because I'm going to tell you. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus has served us through his obedience to death on the cross. Jesus has served us by rising again from the dead and being highly exalted at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and when he comes back on that final day, we will have a meal with him in the new heavens and the new earth at the marriage supper of the Lamb. That's why in verse 30, Jesus tells his disciples, and by us extension, you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Don't know exactly what all that means. There's a lot of kind of scholarly debate about what Jesus is talking about there, but I think he's talking about at that final end of the age, when we gather for the marriage supper of the Lamb, we will be able to eat at the table with Jesus, and again, like he served the disciples there at the Last Supper, he will serve all of us by virtue of him being the resurrected Christ. So through his perfect life, Jesus is the greatest servant of all time. Through his obedient death, Jesus is the greatest servant of all time. Through his victorious resurrection from the dead, Jesus is the greatest servant of all time. Through his exaltation to the Father in heaven, Jesus is the greatest servant of all time. And when he comes back as King of kings and makes all things new, he will still be the greatest servant of all time. He served us with his life. This should drive you to your knees in humility and gratitude and thankfulness that Jesus did this for you when you and I did not deserve to be served. We deserve hell and judgment and wrath. We did not deserve to be served by Jesus, but to be judged by Jesus. We did not deserve to be saved by Jesus, but to be punished forever in hell because of our sin. 
Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And how did he do that? To give his life as a ransom for many. That word ransom just simply means he bought us with his blood. He paid for us in full with his blood on the cross. He died in our place, taking the judgment we deserved. So as we think about what Jesus has done, it causes us to bow in humility to this great Savior who's the greatest of all time. So let me ask you the question, who's the goat? That's kind of a crass way of putting it. Who's the greatest of all time? Obviously, it's Jesus. But Jesus is the greatest of all time, not because he came to be served, which he rightfully deserved to be served. He's the greatest of all time because he came to serve us when we deserve nothing but hell and to give his life as a ransom to purchase us out of hell to have a relationship with him. That's the greatest act of servanthood. Jesus, the greatest of all time, gave his life for us. And so because Jesus served us and gave his life for us, that's the motivation for us to turn around out of thankfulness and to serve others. We serve others because Jesus served us first. We love others because Jesus loved us first. And he gives us the power to do that through the Holy Spirit, to be humble, to lay our lives down for others because Jesus is not only our example He's also our Lord, and he gives us the power to do it. And when we fail to do it, he gives us the grace to pick, our, to, to, to pick us up back again and gets us on the path and says, I know you failed, but my forgiveness is for you. You can walk in, in newness of life even when you fail. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. And let's spend some time in prayer thanking Jesus for serving us, thanking Jesus for dying for us, and and also asking Jesus to give us the strength to serve others, to humble ourselves before others, to look out for the interest of others, to not be so selfish, but to seek the good of others with Christ-like humility. Would you spend a few moments in prayer this morning asking the Lord to search your heart? Heaven, if we're honest with ourselves, we are very selfish people. I know I'm a selfish man. I'm a prideful man. And I'm a self-centered man. And Lord, all of us look at our lives and know that we don't put others first. We aren't humble at times. We don't look out for the needs of others. We're not like-minded. We're contentious and selfish and vain. And that guilt means that we deserve hell. But praise you, Jesus, that you came to serve us. We did not deserve to be served at all, but you served us You died for us. You gave your life for us that we might be forgiven. We might be freed. We might have hope. You gave us the gift of the Holy Spirit to live in us, to give us the power to live in this type of Christ-like humility. And so, Jesus, we need you. Not only is our example 
of what it means to serve, but also as our Savior to save us from our sins and our Lord to lead our lives so that we can walk in obedience to you. So Lord, let us be thankful as we leave this place for you giving your life for us. And as we think about that, let us also be humble as we leave this place in serving others. Help us to find concrete and tangible ways this week that we can serve someone behind the scenes, not looking for recognition, but Lord, just give us ways that we can put others before ourselves, that we can be Christ-like in our humility, and that we would be truly great because we serve, and the glory would go to you, not to us. So Lord, let that be a reality this week, that we would walk in thankfulness for your cross and humility in loving and humbling ourselves before others. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for your glory. Amen.